So today, uh, we are preaching about joy. We're talking about joy. Uh, we're focusing in on joy. And so before I get too far into talking about joy, I thought it would be important to let you all know how much I despise sermons about joy. Now that, that might sound pretty awful, and those two things don't fit together, despising and joy, right? Uh, but I really, I really struggle with sermons about joy. Now you might ask, okay, well, Alex, why do you struggle so much with sermons about joy? Uh, this is uh, kind of a frustration for me. And most times I've ever heard somebody preach about joy, I have left the sermon feeling guilty and ashamed because I get the sense that I'm not joyful enough and what I really need to do when I, when I hear these sermons about joy, what I really need to do, what I really need to walk away with is, hey, I just need to be more joyful. Like, that's, that's the impression that I get. Now, now, is that necessarily the preacher's fault? No, it could have everything to do with my fallen heart and the way that I hear the sermon, but, but the impression that I walk away with is, Alex, what you need to do is just be more joyful. And I don't know about you, but I don't have the ability to change my emotional state on command. Like, I can't just all of a sudden well up with joy inside of me. Like, I can't decide, okay, now, right now, I am going to be joyful. So I struggle generally with sermons about joy because that's the, the impression that I get when I walk away is that uh, I kind of just need to change my emotional state. And so, on top of that, on top of that, I happen to be preaching about joy in December of 2020 to all of you, right? Like, this is a, an incredible challenge, Alliance Bible Church, and, and this is what I know about people at Alliance Bible Church right now. I know that some of you feel overworked and overwhelmed in your jobs. I know that some of you seriously are struggling with isolation right now. I mean, we're coming into 10 months of dealing with COVID, I know that some of you, uh, you have confronted this virus personally, like in your body, and, and, uh, and some of you even dealt with very closely uh, the reality that this thing could take you, right? Uh, some of you confronted the virus and, and dealt with it taking and, and dealing with family members. Some of you uh, are, are struggling right now with tight financial situations. Some of you are dealing with family turmoil, and, and most of us are missing the typical cheerful and joyful pieces of life that would represent this season. And so the risk of preaching about joy this morning is that you all are facing significant challenges and we might get to the end of the sermon and what you might hear your pastor say is that what you need to do is just be more joyful. So, so John, like what you need to do right now is just be more joyful. Norma, what you need to do is just be more joyful. Grace, just be more joyful. Ray, Ray, I've got a, a solution for you. You just need to be more joyful. And that would be a huge mistake. Like I would not be doing my job if what you walked away with this morning is that what you need to do is just be more joyful. So, um, so I actually want to thank the Lord for, for one of our elders 
Uh, he, talked, he, he talked about joy this week. Garth Alexander gave you a, a little message, one of our video devotions, which if you're not getting our video devotions, you can participate in those. We're sending them out in email. They're on our Facebook page. But, but Garth talked about joy this week, and, uh, and he gave us good news about joy. He gave us a little bit of hope regarding joy. And he was highlighting the difference between happiness and joy, and he said that happiness is influenced by our circumstances. So if we looked at the circumstances that people in our church are facing, that you all are facing, that we together are facing, happiness might be at a depletion point, right? But then what he told us was this amazing truth, that joy is not determined by our circumstances. Joy is not determined by our circumstances. So if you are struggling this morning, if you can't see past your current situation, if you're overwhelmed, there is good news. Because if you actually want joy, it has nothing to do with the circumstances of your life. You don't have to change your circumstances in order to receive it. So, uh, so open your Bibles. We're in Isaiah 35 this morning, the passage that Pastor Don read for us. And as we walk into this passage, my goal is not to say be more joyful, but with the Spirit's help, I want to help us see the joy that is already ours in Christ. So Isaiah 35, 1 to 2. Verse 1 says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. So, so Isaiah, he's writing these words, and what he assumes is that we know what he's talking about when he uses words like rejoice and joy. Um, and so I, I think before we even really start talking about what's going on in the passage, we really need to talk about what biblical joy is. So biblical joy is an internal experience of delight that leads to external celebration. So, so oftentimes you'll see the Bible say something like, um, joy will arise or joy will come about, God will bring joy, and as a result, we are to rejoice. So, so joy is the experience, it's the internal experience, but then out of that internal experience comes the external expression of celebration, the rejoicing that happens. And so interestingly enough, joy is, is different from peace. Because peace is, is the ability to kind of rest easy despite conflict. But joy is bigger than peace because it's this kind of internal excitement. It's this reservoir of wonder and amazement that leads to rejoicing, that leads to this external uh, celebration, celebrating the things about which you are excited. And so, uh, so now what's interesting about where we are in Isaiah is that this is a really significant spot because in Isaiah 34, Isaiah talks about how the earth is going to be devastated, how mankind will be destroyed, how sin and sinners will finally experience judgment at God's hand. There's like this desolation that is going to come to earth, and then we see Isaiah 35. And Isaiah 35 comes after this prophecy about judgment and devastation, and what it does is it gives a promise about joy. 
Now, that joy is first expressed by pointing out the abundance of plant life in, in dry places, and uh, he talks about joy and rejoicing welling up in spite of the setting and in spite of circumstances, right? And so we kind of have this backdrop of Isaiah 34 with this judgment that is coming, and then on top of that, you have this place called the wilderness and the dry land, but with all of that, in the middle of it, you have this abundance that is rising up. This is the illustration that Isaiah is using for joy. And so, so the end of verse 2 actually tells us the cause of this joy that is welling up. It says, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So, so whenever you see in Scripture uh, the glory of the Lord, this is not some vague reference to light, but it is a reference to the visible, physical presence of God. Isaiah is saying God is actually going to show up on the earth. He will be present. And then as a result, joy will begin welling up out of creation because God has shown up, because he has become present. And now that, that, um, what we see is that the promise then that's given as a result of God showing up, the promise is this, when God comes, joy will rise out of despair. That's what we've got so far. When God comes, joy will rise out of despair. Now, this is super counterintuitive because deserts don't create plant life, but somehow plant life is going to come out of the desert. Somehow despair, uh, joy is going to be able to come out of it because despair can't produce joy. But verses 3 and 4, they help us to understand what God's arrival on earth is going to look like, why this abundance is going to come about. So verses 3 and 4, they expand on this. Verse 3 says, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart. So if you have an anxious heart, the encouragement, that the source of the joy is listed in verse 4. Here are the words that you are to hear. Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. He will come and save you. So here's the source of joy. It's not just that God comes, but that God is coming to save. So, so God's saving act it creates joy. It's this counterintuitive promise, and, and this kind of expands our promise a little bit. The promise is now when God comes, he will save, and joy will rise out of despair. When God comes, he will save, and joy will rise out of despair. So it goes on to tell us what comes along with this salvation. Every layer of Isaiah is something deeper about uh, what this joy, where it comes from. So verses five and six says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. These miracles, again, they are all counterintuitive, and they accompany this promise of God's salvation. So, so if we took the promise on, his own, on its own, that, that God is coming to save, Like that promise by itself should be enough to create joy. But on top of that promise about God's salvation, what you get is all of these additional promises and certifications about things that God is going to do. So like 
when I uh, got engaged to my wife, when I asked my wife to marry me, uh, it would have been enough for me to just give her an engagement ring. Like, that would have been enough. That is like the sign of the promise, right? But on top of that, I surrounded that engagement ring with other promises, with other commitments from myself. I uh, surrounded that engagement ring and uh, the period of our engagement with romance and that, that, that time of us spending time together, getting to know each other, going on dates, enjoying one another's company. That didn't just stop when I gave her the engagement ring, but that kind of stuff continued. I connected words in that moment when I asked her to marry me. I connected all of these words to that engagement ring. There were acts of love that came after that engagement ring And that engagement ring was a promise from me to her. Like on its own, it could have stood on its own, but what I did is I added all of these extra things onto it, these these things that uh, were resembling my passion for my wife. So, So not only does she have my promise and my commitment, but she has additional and continuous signs of my passion for her. And so God's passion for his people is such that while he could just let the promise stand on its own, he decides graciously to add all of these other things onto the promise to make it abundantly clear what he's doing. And so then naturally, as he adds these things on, he goes on to even explain what this salvation will look like. So heads up, if you, if you want to know the source for real joy, the reservoir for wonder, it becomes explicit in verses 8 through 10. So it, so it tells us what is true about those who are actually rescued when God comes to save, what is true about them, what they experience. So I actually want you to imagine yourself as an Israelite, uh, and, and you listen to Isaiah the whole book, the whole, all the words that he has to share, you listen to him and you hear him give you warnings about things that God is going to do. You hear about the judgment that God plans to bring. You become aware of how God tires of your religious activity that is devoid of any passion or heart. Every Israelite who, who read Isaiah would have been deeply convicted of sin, should have been deeply convicted of sin. And so, so the words that you encounter as an Israelite, hearing what Isaiah is, is talking about and hearing these words that God is speaking, these words are words that break down, words that reveal sin, words about God's wrath and judgment and these kinds of things. And then you come to chapter 35 and you read about this joy that God is bringing to people that he saves. So here we see four wonder-making feats of God's salvation, four wonder-making feats of God's salvation, starting in verse 8. So Isaiah 35, 8 says this, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray, or if they are fools, uh, they should not go on that path. There are kind of two ways to read that, but you should read it as, if they are fools, they shall not go on that path. So this highway, what's significant about highways? Highways 
uh, are places that lead only to the, the most significant places in the known world. Like the, the ancient Near East didn't have the road systems that we have today. So when highways existed, they were places that led only to the most significant of locations. And, and, and not anyone goes on this highway that the Lord is talking about. It is an exclusive access highway. It's only for those who are called holy. So you're an Israelite. You've hear, heard these words from Isaiah about judgment. But then you hear about this way that is open. And this could be a word of hope to you, but, but you also recognize how far you fall short. If you've been listening to Isaiah at all, you're going to recognize how far you fall short. But there's this possibility, like if this, this hope is being offered to you, this rescue is being offered to you, there's, there's the possibility then that you could somehow be called holy. Like that's the first wonder-making feat that we see is that, that you might somehow be called holy to walk on this way of holiness. Okay, so, so going on, this salvation, what, what, what about it? Well, in verse 9 it says, No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. So this highway apparently is not only this big highway, but apparently it's a very safe place. And again, this is incredibly counterintuitive because highways are big open areas where you are prone to attack. They are exposed. And you're in the middle of the desert and in this highway, you're prone to all sorts of dangers. But this highway is somehow safe. So the second wonder-making feat is that, that not only could you be called holy, but that you could somehow be free from threat. Okay, so those create a bunch of questions, though, because if you've been listening to Isaiah, you know that you're not holy. If you, you've been listening to Isaiah, you know that you are unclean, and you, but yet you talked about this protection. You're, you hear about this protection that's coming, and so, so verses 9 and 10, they tell us the third one are making feet. It says, the redeemed shall walk there and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. So, so up to this point, it's possible that this promise about salvation would have been disheartening. Why? Because you know yourself. And if you don't know yourself, then Isaiah has been trying to help you understand yourself a little bit more. You fall short. You are not holy. You are unclean. In fact, Isaiah himself, the writer of these words, when he encounters the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know what? Unclean people, they're not supposed to be on this road. Unclean people do not belong here, but you know you're unclean, and somehow this is a promise to you. Verses 9 and 10 tell us how the first two feats are actually possible. So verses 9 and 10 give us the third wonder-making feat, and that is this. God will somehow pay a price to make this possible. God will somehow uh, redeem and ransom you to make it possible for you to be called holy. God will somehow redeem and ransom you for make, to make it possible for you to be safe and free from threat. You know, when God purchases you 
out of slavery. That's what it means to redeem, to purchase out of slavery. If you're paying to, uh, attention to Isaiah, right, and you're talking about slavery, you're talking about being redeemed, uh, what Isaiah brings up again and again is the way that sin has infected people and creation. We see it over and over and how God cannot stand this sin and what ha- the, the havoc that it has wrecked on the world. But what you're told is that God is going to purchase you out of slavery. You're going to you see that he's going to pay your ransom. The, the word ransom, it carries the specific idea of covering a debt or delivering somebody from a punishment, that somebody would pay something in full to make sure that that person didn't have to pay for it themselves. The ransom has been paid. So God somehow is going to pay a price to make all of this possible. So verse 10 provides our fourth wonder-making feat. Isaiah 35.10, it says, And come to Zion with singing. The redeemed and the ransomed of the Lord, they come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The fourth wonder-making of feet that Isaiah offers is this. You could be able to approach God with delight. Like the, as Isaiah lays out the promise, he gives this possibility that you, you, you sinful person, you unclean person, that somehow you are going to be able to approach a holy God with delight. Uh, so this is incredible because as you've been reading this, you know that God is mighty and he's terrifying and he deals harshly with sin. But you can go to Zion. Zion, by the way, is the place where God is. As you hear Israel talk about Zion, it's this location, the place where we recognize that God is in that place. This is where we go to visit God, to be with God. And you can go to him, and you can be joyful about it. You don't have to be terrified about what he's going to do, but you can walk forward with everlasting joy. So verses 8 through 10, they explain the specifics of the source of joy that is promised. And this is, this is really what Isaiah is saying. He's saying God will pay greatly to make ruined sinners right. God will pay greatly to make ruined sinners right. So then, if you could, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. When we get to Matthew 11, we're going to come on the story of a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a guy convinced of God's promises. Uh, and, And he would have been very aware of the promise that we just talked about, this promise about God's salvation, right? And John, we see that John, in fact, he jumped for joy in Elizabeth's womb when he heard about the Messiah being born, right? Like, that's the story that we got. And then John, he baptizes Jesus, and he makes it clear in his words. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like, Messiah is coming to save, and he is going to save from sin. He is going to make this right. He saw every joyful promise given by the prophets wrapped up in Jesus. And he knew when Jesus came on the scene, he knew that God has come to visit earth in the flesh. 
These are all things that he knew. These are the things that he talked about. This is what he spent his life obsessing over, talking about, preaching about, looking forward to. So Matthew eleven two 2 says this. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, stop there. His circumstances are not good. Like as John looks around him, he has been preaching, yes, and he's been proclaiming the good news about God, and he's been proclaiming about this salvation that God is gonna bring through his Messiah, but now he's been thrown in prison by the government that is occupying the land that uh, is supposed to belong to Israel. Like think from his perspective. Even as you process uh, the, the promise that we just read, that there won't be any ravenous beasts on this way of holiness? Well, in John's mind, he's been thrown in prison. The ravenous beasts are winning. And Jesus has been ministering for, for some time now, but from John's perspective, Jesus came on the scene and nothing has changed. Nothing is different, and John is suffering because of it. And so he's missing the joy that was promised. So look in verse 3. John in prison, he sent word by his disciples. And said to him, that is Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John's in the middle of this circumstance. He's been given all of these promises about joy. He truly believes that the Messiah, God in the flesh, has come on the scene. Nothing is changing. And he needs to know, is, it, is this real? Is this true? Is this actual or should we be looking somewhere else so listen to what jesus says to him in verses four through six and jesus answered them go and tell john what you hear and see the blind receive their sight the lame walk lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Does any of this sound familiar? John asks, are you really the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Because nothing is changing. This situation, these circumstances are awful. I am suffering and you were supposed to bring joy. And Jesus tells John, John, it's happening. You don't have all the details right now, but here's what you do know. And John's mind would have went immediately to Isaiah 35. The blind see. The lame are walking. The deaf are hearing. John, the dead are coming to life. The barren and the poor are being given hope. John, there are people who are following me. These, these people, these people who are not offended by me, who are walking with me through this, and they are being recipients of God's favor. They are blessed right now. And so when John is struggling to find joy, what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, John, be more joyful. He tells John, what is true. The promises are happening. It's being carried out. So that same Jesus who came to earth as a baby, he came for the purpose of saving 
people. The same Jesus who came as a baby, he paid greatly with his body and blood on a cross to make ruined sinners right. The one who performed the miracles and helped the lame to see, or the the lame to walk and the blind to see, he came to take away our sin. So that even while we are still struggling with sin, God could call us holy because of what Jesus did. God protects us because of what Jesus did. We can now approach God without fear or trepidation of what we might experience because he welcomes us because of what Jesus did. We can become among those who are rescued. We can find ourselves in the presence of our rescuer for eternity. That's what is true. That's where joy comes from. That is the source of joy and it is available to everyone. So if you see yourself as a sinner, if you see your own weaknesses, if you fear that you could never be forgiven, there is good news this morning. Jesus came and paid greatly to make ruined sinners right. So if you've never trusted in Jesus before, and you'd like to do that today, if you want to be made right with God. If you see yourself as a ruined sinner who needs to be made right, then I'd invite you to to begin following Jesus today. The way you can do that is you simply pray to him. Admit that you are a sinner. Turn from your sin and acknowledge him as Lord. Believe that he is God's son sent down from heaven and confess that he is Lord of creation. Everyone who follows Jesus, we have the promise that we are made right, not because of anything that we do, because of what he has done. So what? So what? I have one this morning, and it's simply this. What you need to hear is not be more joyful, but celebrate the truest joy. Like when circumstances are challenging, when despair is lingering, when suffering comes, when money is tight, when you are overwhelmed, when you can't see beyond your situation, when things don't seem to be even pointing towards hope for you, it would be incredibly cruel of me to say to you, just be more joyful. It'd be incredibly cruel of you to say to yourself, just be more joyful. So when you find yourself in that place, the answer is not somehow try to well up within you some kind of emotional change, but the answer is this. Remind yourself of what is true. What Jesus has accomplished. Sing a song of praise to him about what he has done, even when you don't feel like it. Like show up for Sunday worship, which by the way is a celebration. When we worship together on Sunday, we are celebrating what it is that God has accomplished. And that doesn't mean we're denying any of the bad in the world, but it means that what has been done for us is so amazing, but that we can't help but sing about it and praise God about what has been accomplished. Read a psalm out loud that praises God when you're overwhelmed. Tell a brother or sister the truth that you're trying to hold on to in the midst of hard circumstances. Celebrate what God has done even when your circumstances create sadness and anger. And don't ignore those feelings. 
I'm not saying that you, uh, you, you look at the, the, the good things that God has done and just forget the bad things that you're facing. No, I, I, I'm not saying ignore them. You acknowledge them. You acknowledge the challenge that you exist, but you don't run from it. In the midst of it, you also acknowledge what is true. Celebrate what you've been given and what you did not deserve, despite what you're experiencing right now. That's the source of joy in the midst of hard circumstances, and it's hard. I said yesterday, I mean, there, there were probably 800 things in my day that, that weren't going right, and, uh, and I knew I was preaching on joy today, right? So, like, the challenge, it was just real, and it is a fight to remind yourselves of what is true, the thing that is most true, the thing that is most amazing that has been accomplished for you. But if you want joy, it is accessed and reminding yourself of the truth of what God has accomplished for your sake. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, as we consider this Christmas season, the reality that you came, that you visited earth, that you were physically present here in the flesh, and that you didn't just come, but you came to save You came to make what is wrong inside of us right. That we could walk on this thing called the way of holiness. That we could be called holy. That we could walk to you and be welcomed into relationship with you without fear of what you might do to us, but knowing that you truly love us. That your heart is is for us. Lord, these are the amazing things that we celebrate in this season as we look at the the coming of the Lord Jesus to this earth. We look at a Savior who has done what we could not do ourselves. So Lord, in the midst of our challenging circumstances, and they are, are perhaps more abundant this year than they ever have been, Lord, in the midst of our challenging circumstances, Holy Spirit, remind us of what is most true. Remind us of what is true about us that cannot change. What you have accomplished for us. What you've bought for us. Lord, remind us of what it is that you have done to save us. We pray all of these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.